The scripture for today is Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 to 15. Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 to 15. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither your Father will forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. So uh, before we go in, would you join with me in praying, um, asking the Lord to speak to us? A gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace this evening, wanting to be refreshed by you, Lord. Some of us are weary, some of us are tired, some of us are burdened, some of us have gone through an extremely fatiguing time in our lives. And I pray that as we spend time looking into your word and the words you told us on how to pray, I pray that it will reignite a deep desire in all of us to want to long to be in your presence because there alone can we find that perfect peace the joy inexpressible and full of glory that we can taste and see that you are good, not only in our minds, but in our hearts as well. So I surrender myself and all of us this evening. May our Holy Spirit encourage, edify, convict, exhort, and illuminate our hearts that we may walk away with having tasted your word in a deep way in our lives. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. You know, these uh, past um, two and a half years have been a challenging time for all of us, isn't it? I guess we've all spent more time on Zoom or Google Meets than all the previous years put together. So, if you have done that, uh, how many of you have used Zoom in some form or fashion? You, we have a new name, we are called Zoombies. Because we just have gotten so stuck into it, isn't it? And though it was great in helping us to get things going, 
all these advances in technologies and devices that we had, which were meant to unite us and connect us, didn't really do that, didn't they? You know, they, um, uh, I was reading an article by Andy Crouch, one of my favorite authors in Time Magazine. He talks about how this technology that we develop here in Silicon Valley that's supposed to connect us actually disconnects us from one another and God. And here's a uh, quote from his article. He says, all technology, like all magic before it, craves godlikeness. Technology pursues the classic divine attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. Knowing everything, being everywhere, and being capable of anything. Technology, like magic, seems to possess these divine qualities, and it promises that with its help we can have them too. In short, that it can help us be like God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, which was the temptation. But what this pandemic revealed to us was it's an empty promise. It created more emptiness and more fatigue. And you know, I was um, sitting in a coffee shop before coming here and was watching a couple that just came in. It was Paris Bucket in Calaveras, was one of my favorite places to meet people. And they both came in, got their stuff, and they were both stuck on their devices, you know, instead of having communication. And I think it was Damien who was telling me, goes into college campuses and sees kids sitting right next to each other, not being able to connect with one another personally. You know, personally for me, um, this has been a challenging season too over this past two and a half years. Uh, a very draining, fatiguing time. You know, Berna's research, I was reading an article, it said 40% of pastors all over the United States are ready to quit or have already quit. And I was thinking to myself, um, as I was going through this pandemic, I was serving in three organizations, part of Spectrum Church. Um, it was leading an organization called iSpectra. We did a conference uh, with bringing 45 churches together and serving on the board of a counseling center. All great stuff, exciting stuff, but it somehow crept into even my time with God and left me very fatigued. And I had to make a call, and just a couple of weeks ago, you know, after much prayer, I decided to step down from one of the organizations and realized that I had not spent that much time in God's presence myself, though I was doing all these things. And so just these past few weeks have been very refreshing for me to get back to the basics of being in God's presence in praying. And so as I was thinking about what I can share with you this evening, I was reminded of uh, the Lord's Prayer. Now, I don't know how your prayer life is, but, you know, uh, Dr. Bobby Clinton is a professor of leadership uh, at Fuller Seminary. He researches leaders, um, contemporary leaders and biblical leaders. You know, he came up with a leadership emergence theory and he said, when leaders experience fatigue, they are very vulnerable to fail. And three out of four Christian leaders 
end up not finishing well. And the key to avoiding that is for them to periodically go into these times of intense spiritual renewal to renew their relationship with God. And prayer is one of those foundational experiences. So I just want to encourage you today and ask you this question, how is your prayer life? You know, not in a guilt-tripping way to make you feel terrible or bad, but if you are a Christian and if we have tasted the love of God and the grace of God, we can read all the best theology books out there in the world. We can hear the best sermons that are out there. We can go and even serve God faithfully but if our prayer life is not deep and rewarding, you're going to be fatigued very soon and set yourself up to fall. So if you are like me, I want to encourage you today, you can always start again. There's always a time to get back to enhancing our personal prayer time. You know, modern Lloyd-Jones said this about prayer. He said, prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when upon his knees he comes face to face with God. It is the highest activity of the human soul and therefore it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. There is nothing that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. He even goes on to say how it's easy for him to preach on prayer than to actually pray. <laughs> how true it is, isn't it? And so I want to direct us to the text that was read to us this evening where we can learn about prayer from Jesus himself, our high priest, who is actually even interceding for you and me right now. In fewer than 70 words, we find a masterpiece of the infinite mind of God, who alone could compress every conceivable element of true prayer into such a brief and simple form, a form that even a young child can understand but the most mature believer still has something to comprehend. And so he gives us this form. He says, you can pray like this, not to make it like a mantra, but more like a guiding principle for us. If most of the times our struggle is we don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray. And you end up and you start talking stuff and, and you, you, you kind of get lost. You know, thoughts come in and take you. So if you're someone like that, and if you are wanting to restart your personal prayer life, I want to encourage you to use this as a template to pray in an analogous, similar fashion. And I want to unpack all the elements that Jesus packs into this so that we can apply it in our own prayer lives and pray prayers that will revive us spiritually and enable us to stay more connected with God and love others. 
And, and just from our context, before Jesus tells us how to pray, he first tells us how not to pray. And, and, and even this whole prayer, if we zoom out a little bit, it comes smack in the middle of what is popularly called the Sermon of the Mount, which we read in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. You know, the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived, there was Jesus himself. And he begins his Sermon on the Mount by taking 12 of his disciples up on a mountain. You know, in, in, Israel is a little bit like California, and Lake Galilee is more like Lake Tahoe. You know, you, know, you guys had your retreat there some time ago, and it was like if you're up in Heavenly Resort and you're looking down at uh, Lake Tahoe, that's the setting of the Sermon on the Mount. He takes these people... There's 5,000 of them or more, and puts 12 of his disciples, and he says, let me tell you something. These were people who are under a rebellious regime, the, the most atrocious, brutal government of the Roman Empire. They were being suppressed by false religion, where the Pharisees made their lives so miserable, Help making them to obey every dot of the law that left them exhausted and have no hope. And he is telling them, I want to tell you that I have come here to create a new kind of a kingdom. And I want to invite you to be part of the kingdom. And he gives them a roadmap in the first few verses of how anyone can enter into that kingdom. It's, it's called the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You say, if you want to enter into your kingdom, you need to first empty yourself of stuff. Like just our brother was sharing in his own life. That's the starting place for entering into the kingdom. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Once you look at your heart and you see all the things that are not aligned with God, it creates a sadness that leads to repentance. Blessed are those who are meek. It naturally then makes you a different person. You become a meek person. Blessed are those who are hunger and thirst for righteousness. You now want to really experience and taste godliness in your life. And he goes on and on to say, when you have these experiences, you're going to enter into this kingdom and become my disciples. You know, these 12 guys who are seated here, that's the kind of guys I want to produce and reproduce. And this is not going to be a kingdom like the Roman Empire. This is not going to be a spiritual kingdom like what the Pharisees have built. This is a countercultural kingdom that I am building where the losers will be winners and the winners will be losers. In fact, every single one of these 12 disciples are going to be martyred and die for Jesus. And so that's the kind of kingdom I'm building. And then he goes on to unpack what does kingdom living look like? He presents a holistic gospel that's not just only about our mind, but our heart and our actions. And he flips the narrative on the law. He says things like, you know, you, you, it's, you don't have to commit adultery. If you look lustfully at a woman, you have committed adultery. If you are angry at someone, you have committed murder. And he glazed on all these things and he, and he goes straight to the heart of it. At the end, he, he lands on love. He says, I want you to love not everybody, your enemies. Wow. By the time you get there, you feel like this is even possible. Can I even do that? And to top it off, in Matthew 5, 48, he says, be perfect for your heavenly father is perfect. 
And then you feel like, I can't do this. This is just so high. Jesus makes it so hard. And the word perfection is not as we understand perfection to be, like not flawless, but he's talking of a wholeness that he wants us to have. And so he gives us this prayer now. Well, if you're in that spot, let me tell you, I know it's not possible by yourself. I know you cannot do it by yourself. But guess what? I have done it for you. And you can receive it freely. And the place for you to receive my grace is in your closet through prayer. You don't have to do religion. So he says, how not to pray? Don't pray like the, hypo the, the Pharisees have taught you. You know, it's just performance without passion. They do this to exalt themselves, to promote themselves. But pray in secret. God sees everything. He knows everything. He doesn't need you to put on a show. And, and, and also he corrects the action. He says you don't have to use empty phrases. You know, I was um, born and raised in India. India is a very religiously pluralistic country. Six of the world's major religions came from India. My neighbor on the right was a Muslim, and my neighbor on the left was a Brahmin. And very close to us, we had a mosque and a temple. And 5 a.m. every day, the mosques would scream on the loudspeakers the, the Quran and the Islamic prayer. And 5.30, the Hindu temples will start blasting the chants and the mantras. And I actually have memorized both of them because I heard it every single day. <laughs> it's the same stuff. It's the same words. They repeat the same things. So he says, no, 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 you don't have to do that. Who are you trying to impress? God? Don't use too many phrases, too many words. And, and, and by the way, God's purpose in prayer is not for us to inform or persuade him to respond to our needs. Prayer is not meant to change God. Prayer is meant to change us. And, and with that, he takes them, let me tell you guys how to pray. Because they've never known how to pray. It's all the pharisaical religious prayer that they were exposed to. And there's a beautiful pattern. It's very simplistic. If you have that picture, you can show that now. There's an object of prayer, you know, who you can pray to. And then there are three divine quests, three divine things that Jesus wants us to pray for. And there are three personal quests he wants us to pray for. So first, who do you pray to? This is something that when the first time I read and understood, it blew my mind. It says, you pray to our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. And how can you and I call God as our Father? You know, Jesus said the only way you can call God as our Father, He's only my Father. He's the father of Jesus Christ because he sent his own son. But you and I don't have the privilege to call somebody else's father as our father unless you and I are adopted into the same family. You know, um, 
I have three kids, and our first is our biological daughter, her name is Carissa, and second and third are our adopted kids, Brian and Sophia, they're apart by a few years. And it was amazing for me to see what they want from their dad. You know, off late, my older daughter, she's uh, going to be a senior uh, this year, her, she is big into um, K-drama. Any of you guys watch K-drama? <laughs> and I've never watched K-drama. I'm not a big fan of any drama, you know, Bollywood drama or Hollywood drama or whatever. So she's been after me for a long time to watch a K-drama, and uh, I kept saying no. And finally, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I decided, okay, let me see why she wants me to watch it. So we sat and watched, um, what was it, Extraordinary Attorney Wu? I don't know if you watched it. <laughs> it was so fascinating. And she, and I, and I watched it, it was cool, and, and I said, so why did you want me to watch K-drama? And her answer was, so I want to spend time with you. I just want to be in your presence. You're busy all the time, running around doing stuff. You don't just hang out. And, and, and come in, I want to come, you to come into my world and experience this. And, and my other daughter, Sophia, you know, she um, loves going out on dates with me to Jamba Juice. And it's the biggest thing for her in her life. And if I miss it for some time, she reminds me, and she's been after my back, to take her. And the reason is the same. She wants that special time to be in her father's presence. And, and my son, Brian, you know, summer was hot. We were just goofing around, playing in our backyards. We didn't have our shirts on. And, and one thing he likes to do is to come and give me these tight bear hugs. He's a big boy. <laughs> and he just asked me a question recently that blew my mind off. When he hugged me, he said, so daddy, how was it for you when you hugged your daddy? And that's when I was shocked because I'd never hugged my daddy. <laughs> and I didn't have a great relationship with him. I lost him when I was 15 years old. And he never... I don't know how it is in Korean culture, even generally in Indian culture, parents are not very expressive. They don't even hug or kiss or touch each other outside the home. But there was no expression. I was only disciplined by him. I only remember the times he disciplined me and, um, and never I got hugged. The only time I hugged him was when he was on his deathbed about to die and he had to be lifted so he can eat. So I had to hug and lift him up and I got reminded of that and when I said that to him, he started crying. It was like, and I asked him, Brian, why are you crying? He said, well, daddy didn't, daddy's daddy didn't hug daddy like my daddy hugs me. There was like six daddies in that state. <laughs> and then he asked the cutest thing, can, can, he calls himself baby, though he's pretty big. Can baby be daddy's baby, daddy? <laughs> I said, yes, so, so he's asked me to call him as baby daddy. He's now my baby daddy. <laughs> So he says, whenever you've, you've missed the hug, come to me. I'll give you a free hug. And I was thinking, isn't that what Jesus did? You and I were alienated, living our own selfish, self-centered lives. And then he comes 
and he says, I want to give you, help you have the same experience that I have within the Trinity. The love that exists within the Trinity. Because I am the eternal son of God the Father. He's the son who was eternally generated from God the Father. And he didn't want to keep it to us. He wanted to take us into that union that exists within the Trinity. And he does that. And he says, I'm giving it to you guys. You know, you can call my daddy as your daddy. Our father. And it's so exciting for me to always go into my daddy's presence. I want you guys to have that. You know, when you enter prayer with that mindset, it changes everything. It changes everything you think you want to ask before you start praying. Your prayer just becomes totally different, isn't it? Because we have been adopted into this awesome family. And since he's a father in heaven, doesn't matter if you had a horrible dad like mine or if you had no daddy or if you had a great daddy. He is the perfect father. He will never disappoint us. We can go to him when we, when we sin and when we feel we have messed up. He will embrace us unconditionally. He's not going to tell you, go fix yourself and clean up and then come after me. Because he has done that through his son, Jesus. And he looks at us through his son, Jesus. We can go to him when others hurt us. We can go to him with all our requests because the whole world belongs to my daddy. And the second thing he says you can focus on is, uh, hallowed be your name. Or holy be your name. You know, it's a very archaic term. We don't use hallow around a lot these days. But the word hallowed or holy means setting something apart or setting God apart or setting him to be the most important person relationship in our lives. You can't just say that because all of us, by default, we have these other things that have crept into our lives as idols. You may not be worshiping idols like my Hindu friends do everywhere in their homes or workplaces too. And I find that really strange. You can't bring any Bible verses to your workplaces. But you have, if you have Hindu colleagues, you can see they bring their gods and make them sit there <laughs> right in their cubicle. It's, I, I just don't get it. But, but what this is saying is to ask ourselves, is really God number one in my life? Or have I have, do I have something else, some other idol that I keep gravitating to? To find fulfillment, to find acceptance, to find satisfaction so that I can feel like God. That's the promise of everything that baits us, isn't it? It could be coming in the form of a relationship I want to pursue. It could come in the form of a career pathway that I'm putting so much emphasis on. It could be in the form of security or whatever it may be. But when we pray this prayer, God, I, I want to see in my heart, is there something else going on that's taken the place that you alone need to take? And when you go into a time of prayer, God always shows that. It's going to be different for you than it is for me. And that's the first thing we have to deal with in prayer. You know, it's, it's funny, if you look at this pattern of prayer, 
it's kind of inverted. It starts with calling God the Father, and there are these three divine requests, right? And then comes the personal request, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins and, 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 and help us not to get into temptation. But usually our prayers are flipped. We start with our petitions. God, you know what? My life's crazy. I, I want this, I want this, I want that. But that's usually catering to these idols that we have. So if we go this path of praying, it first away, it preempts those things by showing that to us. Lord be your name. And then he talks about your kingdom come. They are connected. Now we are mostly in the process of building our kingdom versus God's kingdom. And even when you pray, that's the temptation. Even when Jesus was tempted, even when he was praying, Satan tempts Jesus himself. It says in Matthew 4, 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory. And he said, this can be yours if you fall at my feet. Isn't that our temptation too? All these idols that we think, there is a temptation of building our kingdoms based off of that. But when we pray, let your kingdom come, we say first it starts in our heart. We want God to rule our hearts. And second, we, we begin to see that God's kingdom is expanding wherever we are in Silicon Valley. And how you and I can be part of that God's kingdom building plan. And thirdly, look at our own lives and surrender any areas where he doesn't have control and give that to him. And by this time, as you are praying, you're really beginning to, God's doing some surgical work in your hearts and revealing yourself. What is it that you're trying to build or who is it that you think you are? You know, one of the things that struck me recently as I was working through this was and struggling to let go, Jesus was asking, are you the savior or am I the savior? It's my job to save people. It's my job to fix people and not yours. Very often we tend to carry the savior mindset, isn't it? When someone comes and asks for help, maybe out of our genuine goodness, we, we think we want to help, we think we want to fix. And especially for pastors, the savior mindset becomes a level more. We feel that's our job. But no, even your pastor is not your savior. Jesus Christ alone is. And that's a freeing thing, both for the pastor and for the members of the church, isn't it? And so that's what God brings to us and, and frees you from that. And, and that can take away our anxieties. You know, what are the things that create anxiety for us? In Matthew 6, 25, in the Sermon on the Mount, right after this, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into bonds, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You know, when we have set our eyes on him as our Father, when he has revealed to us our idols, when he has exposed the kingdoms we are trying to build, he enables us to surrender them all to him so we can experience peace and be freed from anxiety. Third, 
says, your will be done. Now we are ready to let God do his thing in our life. Till then, we are holding it tight. We are fighting. We're like, no, I don't want to give this. I'm, I think I can do it. And what is God's will? You know, what, is, what does it mean by God's will? Are we giving God permission to do what he wants to do? <laughs> no. You know, Gary Friesen has a fantastic book, uh, any of you are interested on, you know, how do I understand God's will for finding my person? Can I date this person or should I choose this school or, you know, what should I do with my next career journey? It's called Decision Making and the Will of God. Gary Friesen talks of how, you know, there is God's sovereign will that he's doing uh, all over the world. He's accomplishing his purposes. And with or without our help. Then there's God's moral will where he has explicitly told us what are things that you and I can do with wisdom that will be beneficial. And, and it's within the subset of God's sovereign will is God's moral will. And within that comes God's personal will for our lives where we have freedom to do what we like as long as it doesn't violate his commands in the scripture. And, and so... As you are in prayer, when God starts showing what is it he is doing in this world, how he is working to help make his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what is his will? It becomes a moment of aligning our life's desires and passions to his, and that can be freeing. You know, three out of four people in the United States believe they are in the wrong jobs. You know, one of the guys I used to work for previously um, used to wear his scientist lab coat, and at the back of his collar, he, uh, he would write, I hate my job, and walk into his boss's office and walk back. <laughs> Who asked you to work? But that's the frustration, because there is a disconnect in most people's lives between what they feel they are called to do and what they end up actually doing. And, and it's just that they, they're, they're struggling to let go and trust God to take them to a place where he can use them to be a blessing in helping make his kingdom come. And, and that happens in prayer. And I remember very vividly as I was before entering pastoral ministry, and I was juggling too many things, and I, I loved what I was doing. And, and, and I had a fantastic boss who was a Christian, and... And still I had this tug to enter pastoral ministry. And I kept rationalizing and thinking about all the reasons and pros and cons, but finally decided one day to spend half a day in prayer and thinking about it. And I still remember the tree under which I sat and prayed where God gave me the grace to let go and take the dive. Prayer accomplishes such things. It sets you free in the paths God has chosen for your life. And how do I do this? How do I know? Look up. You know, when, I, when, I, when we look into who he is, changes us. Look within. Look at your giftedness, your passions, your desires. You know, are you using what you are wired to be with your unique giftings and talents in what you are passionate about in solving some of the world's deepest problems? Prayer moves our hearts to find a kingdom passion and purpose that is bigger than ourselves. It moves us out of our comfort zones to achieve this. You know, Soren Kierkegaard, the philosopher, 
said this. He says, the thing is to understand myself, to see what God really wishes me to do, to find the idea for which I can live and die. And that happens in prayer and through counsel. And it's only when this Jesus lives within us as our king, he reveals these things to us. And there is freedom to pursue that. And then he shifts now to the three personal requests. Says, Give us this day our daily bread. This is usually our first prayer, usually, right? <laughs> if we start by ourselves. You know, the word give us demonstrates a dependence on God as a father. And the scope of it is for just this day. Not about my 401k security, saving up for two generations or three generations. You know, it's the Bay Area as some of the most affluent people on earth. The top 1% of the richest people live somewhere down south of here. And it's also the least philanthropic place. And the reason is all these billionaires are, it's not that they're holding on their money to spend on something. They, they want to see where can I invest in the next unicorn startup. And that can give me back big dividends. So the question to ask is, how much is enough? And the answer is always a little more than what we have, isn't it? But God reminds us, we just need to ask him to give us enough for our daily bread. Why do we want more than what we need? There could be possibly three things. One could be an identity thing. Maybe some of us may struggle, some of us not. Identity is, you know, what drives, one of the reasons why Instagram is such a killer thing is it really wraps around our sense of identity, especially for those who are younger. And they said that, as you might have read those reports, it's driven up depressions and anxiety by several fold than before it was. Or security, you know, maybe it gives a false sense of security, that if you have these things, we feel life's going to be safe, or maybe trust. Really do not believe that God is going to provide for each day, isn't it? But when we are able to look at God as our Father and see that He is going to be able to provide for us, it takes away all these things. And then comes the other two requests, lead us not into trials or temptations. You know, we are constantly pulled both from our own weakness within and from things around us. And Jesus is helping us to pray, saying that you can't do this by your own self. There are two actions and two targets. The actions are lead us not into trials or temptations and also deliver us from evil. There's so much evil going on in the world around that bothers us. But God is not the one who leads us into temptation, isn't it? 
We know from the story of Job why God tested him because it's supposed to produce perseverance. James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt everyone, anyone. God is not the one who leads us into temptation. So then why would Jesus ask us to pray that we are not led into either temptation or trial? You know, even Jesus, when he prayed in Matthew 26, he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Before he said, Yes, not I will, as I will, but as you. You know, the reason we know that God does not tempt us, and even all the trials can be for our good, is for us to know that through that we are becoming made like, becoming like Jesus And so how do I do this? You know, there is a sociologist and anthropologist have figured out how we actually end up getting tempted into doing things we don't want to do. Whether it's, you know, getting angry at someone or lust or pornography or whatever it is. The mechanism is always three things. Remembering, imagining or fantasizing or scheming. Think about anger. Someone hurts you. You're so mad. And rather than wanting to forgive, keep thinking again and again and again. The words they said or the actions they did or didn't do. And then for Asian cultures, I don't know about how it's in your culture, we're very passive aggressive people. If someone hurts you, you will not go and tell them, hey, brother, sister, you hurt me. We do all these passive-aggressive stuff, right, behind the scenes. People will sit and fantasize. <laughs> I wish I could have said that when they said this. The next time they say this, I'm going to say this. <laughs> and that's the scheming part. That's not the way to deal with trials or temptations, but making every thought captive to the thought of Christ. And we can pray because God is faithful and it says he will not al allow us to be tempted beyond what we can. And he has given us the armor of God to protect us, all these things. And in prayer, we are going to use all of those things. And that's going to help us to be ready to face all these things. And finally, when we are going to be persecuted, when we pray this prayer or pray in this form and God prepares us to face whatever life may throw at us, we'll be able to deal with them more gracefully. We'll be able to experience God's presence and peace in a way that displays Christ-likeness to them. I think several of us probably have heard of uh, Nick Wojcik, right? He's a guy, if you Google him, you can see him. He was born without any limbs, no hands, no legs, in 1982 in Melbourne, Australia. You know, three sonograms failed to reveal complications. And yet, 
the Wuichik family was destined to cope with both the challenge and the blessing of raising a son who refused to allow his physical condition to limit his lifestyle. And they, in his own words, he says his early days were difficult. Throughout his childhood, Nick not only dealt with the typical challenges of school and adolescence, but he also struggled with depression and loneliness. He constantly wondered why he was different than all the other kids. He questioned the very purpose of life or if he even had a purpose. And according to Nick, the victory over his struggles, as well as his strength and passion for life today, he says, can be credited to his faith in God. His family, his friends, and the many people he encountered along the journey have inspired him to carry on well. And today, God has been using him mightily around the world. In his, since his first speaking engagement at age of 19, Nick has traveled around the world sharing his story with millions of people. As a young evangelist, he's now an author, a musician, an actor, and even has hobbies like fishing and painting and swimming, and recently was trying to surf um, in the ocean by himself. And he started a nonprofit in SoCal called Life Without Limbs. And he says, if God can use a man without arms and legs to be his hands and feet, then he will certainly use any willing heart that surrenders himself to him. And that's what prayer can do to us. And I want to encourage us, my dear friends, if you're struggling with prayer, if you don't know how to pray or if you've just, your prayer life is just some rambling exercise, it's not doing anything to your soul, Maybe you can start with the Lord's Prayer. You can even just pray this simple prayer by pausing and thinking about it or, or, or expanding on it and applying some of these things. It's just 72 words. If you say the prayer, it's done in less than a minute, right? It's still good enough. God hears short prayers. It's probably two or three tweets long. But you can also spend six hours praying this prayer where you're hearing from him as he does this work, as he re renews our relationship. For me, every time I go, the very first phrase gets me when I say, Our Father in heaven, I'm just, I just have to just take, the, take that in. Though I didn't have a great earthly father, I have an awesome heavenly father. I can just be in his presence and feel loved no matter what I have done yesterday or day before or the week before because of the union in Christ that I cherish. They say it takes 21 days to establish a habit. I don't know what the number is. It keeps shifting. It goes from 10 days and 6 weeks, whatever it is. You can check the latest statistic. But perhaps we can start somewhere. All of us have been tired these past two and a half years. We can all use a little more prayer, isn't it? To draw us more near to him, to pray for the world, to pray for God's kingdom to come in Silicon Valley. And that's my prayer for all of us, especially for Revive. As you seek to reach the nations in the valley, can't be done without prayer. can never pray enough. And there's always more that we can receive than we give.
when we pray. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for even teaching us how to pray, Lord, and something so simple, yet we don't know many times. And we keep rambling and getting lost and distracted and end up giving up. I pray, Father, for everyone here this evening that you'll just revive our hearts, revive our prayer lives, that we may cherish spending time in your presence as our Heavenly Father, knowing how incredibly we are loved, knowing that you are at work within each one of us, knowing that you who began a good work in us will bring it to completion, knowing that you are our provider who keeps providing every single day for us, knowing that you are our protector who protects us from harm and evil and even our own sinfulness, knowing that you are someone who forgives our sins as we forgive others. Oh, how much we need that forgiveness, Lord. I pray that when we pray this, you will help us to also forgive those that we have failed to forgive and practice Christ-likeness in all areas of our lives. I want to pray for Revive. Thank you, Lord, for helping them to now celebrate their third year of anniversary and even through this pandemic, being with them and as they launched through the pandemic, you have seen them through and you have been doing incredible things in everyone's life in this church. And I pray that you will continue to deepen everyone's prayer lives so that Revive can see and experience even more awesome things in the days and years to come. In your name I pray. Amen.